0: If you would turn to Romans chapter 7, we're going to be looking at Romans 7 and Romans 8. I'm thankful to be here. We went from 30 degree weather to 65 to 70. It's really nice. Thankful to be a part of the Founders Conference. Thankful for Founders Ministry. Thankful for men who will stand up for the truth no matter what it cost. What I'm given the task to do tonight is preach on the law and the gospel as it relates to sanctification. I'm going to assume that you know what sanctification is, but it simply is the process of becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, the process of being holy, becoming more and more holy in our lives. And I'm going to take it as an assumption that you want to be holy. That you desire to be godly. That you want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. You want to please the Lord with all that you have with your life. If you're a housewife, you want to please the Lord in sweeping the floor and doing laundry. You want to be a i pleasing to the Lord and how you love your husband. And if you're a husband, you want to please God in the way you, you love your wife and raise your children. You want to please the Lord. I trust in all areas of your life. There's not one compartment of your life that you're thinking, no, I don't need to be holy here. I don't need to be holy in this part of my life. You truly, truly want to please God with everything that you have. But I'm going to also assume that at times, you don't live up to your desire. There's times that you, you want to do what's right, but you're finding yourself having a difficult time to do what you want to do. You, you want to be holy, but you're struggling like I struggle with common sins. Let me tell you what I struggle with. I'll be quite clear and upfront that I struggle with some hideous sins. Pride. I see it in my heart. I struggle with it, and I struggle with it every day. I wake up knowing it feels good to feel important, and wanting to feel important. I struggle with that. I'll be honest. There's other sins we struggle with. Lust. Especially men. Idolatry. The love of this world gets a hold of us. When we could come home from a wonderful conference, be on cloud nine with the Lord, loving the Lord with all of our hearts, then the next thing we know we're on Amazon searching for the next thing we have to have. And finding ourselves discontent. Wishing we had just a little more money, a little more materialistic things. And we find ourselves discontent with the provisions that God has given us. I tell you what I struggle with. It's called selfishness. I want to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with every fiber that's within me. I want to love the Lord, but I'm struggling, struggling with just Thinking about myself above God and above others. I don't feel I'm alone in this battle. But I I can honestly tell you I want to do what's right. I want to live holy. And what we're going to look at in chapter 7 and chapter 8 of this passage, and I know I can't go into all the details. We're covering too much ground. But what I want to do in the time that I have, and just in this broad sweeping motion, explain the role that the law plays in our sanctification. And secondly, the role that the gospel plays in our sanctification. It has been said by some that we're justified by Christ and sanctified by the law. We're going to examine that phrase. And we're going to look at that phrase and see if that's actually biblical. And we're going to see what the, the law plays. How does it factor in in our sanctification? And we've already heard that the law is good and it is wonderful. And in fact, Jesus put it this way. You're the least in the kingdom of heaven if you instruct anybody to break the least of the commandments. The law is good and holy, but it does need to be used lawfully. According to its intended purpose, we're going to look at the role the law plays not just in justification, but in sanctification. The law is still needed for believers, it still has a place for us Christians. There's a purpose for it, there's a purpose for the law in the church for sanctification. Then we're going to look at what the law can't do. And sanctification, what it can do, and what it can't do. And then we're going to turn and we'll go a little faster. So you think, Oh, my first point's forever. We're we've got four points here, it's going to take forever. Just know that my points get quicker so you can stay tracking with me and finish this thing up because it's going to end well because it ends with the gospel and the role that the gospel plays, not just in justification, but the role the gospel plays. In our own sanctification. How Christians need the gospel. We don't just need it just to be saved initially. We need it to, to stay saved. We need it for sanctification. If you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We've laid out what we want to accomplish. Let's ask the Lord for help in doing so. Dear Lord, we open up your, your holy word. We believe it is sent from you. It's inspired, it's authoritative, Lord, we want to submit ourselves to it. Lord, your, lo- your, your word is precious to us. Lord, illuminate our minds through your Holy Spirit, we pray in your Son's name, amen. First point, and this is essentially what Romans chapter 7 is dealing with, the role that the law plays in sanctification. First, we want to look at the proper use of the law, how the law is needed in our ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ. We'll start at verse 7. We're going to read verses 7 through 13. And, and, and we'll see that in verse 7, that the law is needed not just for, for bringing unrepentant non-believers to the knowledge of sin... The law is needed even for Christians to be aware of their own sin. We see that in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means yet, if it had been not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, this is obviously true with, with the process of being illuminated from a natural man to a regenerate man, that you have to come to the terms that you're lost, you're dead, and your trespasses is sin. The law exposes your unworthiness and your lostness. It does do that, but it still needs to do that for us Christians. The prime example of that is King David, who is a man after God's own heart, who is a believer in God, and yet he was living to some degree, probably not entirely, but to some degree, conscious free over his sins. Until Nathan says, through the law, You're the man. You're the man. Nathan used the law to bring conviction to a believer. And this is the purpose of the law. One of the purposes of law for Christians is to continue to expose our sins. And I can promise you this. If you're a Christian, you still don't know how deep the sin is in your life. You're still not fully aware or conscience how much pride is rooted in the fibers of your muscle. You know, I know you're a new man. Old things are passed away. You're not what you used to be. But I can promise you this. You're not yet glorified. And no man can say, I'm without sin. And the law is still needed to remind us how sinful we still are. We have no room for pride just because we are Christians. We still, if it wasn't for the grace of God, are hopelessly wicked. And the law is there to expose that. We see in verse A, the second purpose of the law is to provoke sin. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead I don't know if you noticed it but there's a hallway where speakers can go and there's a lot there's candy bars and snacks but there's a little sign that says do not enter you know and so it's like the young man walking on the sidewalk and there's this beautiful house fine grass green grass just perfect He's not thinking, just admiring how beautiful it was. And then he saw a little sign that says, do not step on the grass. You know, and before then, he didn't even think about it. But after the sign, he's thinking, oh, that looks soft. I bet mean, that's nice. I mean, it, it's like, it's amazing how the law stimulates the flesh to work against the law. The law is given... As a a means to condemn sin. Uh, It's an administrator of death. Look at verse 9 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Martin Luther says, human nature is so blind so that it does not know its own strength, or rather, its own sickness. Moreover, being proud, it thinks it knows it can do anything. God can cure this pride and ignorance by no other thing than by the publication of his law. You and I, on a regular basis, get deceived, even as Christians, thinking we can do it. don't we? I can do this. I'm a good person. I mean, I I would never do that. My dad is a pastor and he was talking to a pastor friend and they were discussing another pastor that fell into adultery. And this other pastor said to my dad, I would never do that. Two months later, he had committed adultery. Paul says when we think we are strong, that's when we are most weak. When we think, hey, I can live this holy life. Look what I've done. I, man, I've, I've, I quit this bad habit. I don't do that anymore. I don't lie. I don't cuss. I don't do all these things that other people do. I would never sin. It's only by the grace of God that you are not Sinning greater than what you are right now. Some of you, the only reason you don't commit adultery is because you're ugly. (laughs) It's just common grace that restrains you. And I know it's funny, but there's some truth to it. It's just the fact that we're not put into the opportunity. We're not tempted like other people are tempted. And we think, well, I would never do that. You just don't know what you would do under the right. So you give yourself a bad wife that's not treating you right and is always nagging at you. And then you have a beautiful girl that is above your league flirting with you. Don't tell me you don't know what you would do or not. It's by the grace of God and we should walk humbly before the Lord. We should walk very conscious of our own weakness. And the law is there to slay us and to keep us at our knees knowing it's but by the grace of God that we don't fall into the worst of sins. Pride is what will cause us to sin. In fact, the very nature of thinking I can live a holy life without grace, without the gospel, without Christ, all I need is me, myself, and the law, and that recipe is enough for me to be good. No, that itself is pride, and you're already entrapped in sin. We see in verse twelve through thirteen that the law is given to not to promote self-righteousness, not to promote a Go get it attitude, and I can do this. The law is there to kind of a, take away all the hope of self achievement. we see that in verse twelve and thirteen and Romans three: nineteen says that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God It's meant to drive us to the point of Humility. Weakness. And if we're honest with our conscience, we know that the law is true when it says we're guilty. So the law, the right use of the law in sanctification is to reveal sin, to provoke sin, to condemn sin, and to point us not to ourselves, but to someone else. You know, and this is why if you're in biblical counseling, you use the law. You need the law to counsel people. You have to, you know, that third use of the law is vital. You've got to know what's right and wrong. And the law reveals what's right and wrong. And we need to know precisely what God wants from us. So the law is good. It's holy. In fact, we're like the psalmist 119 who could meditate upon the law. In fact, one time I caught myself reading Psalm 119, and I see this man's in love with this thing. He loves it. He's meditating upon it because he's looking at it from all the different uh, angles. And he says, there's, there's nothing evil about it at all. I mean, love God. That's wonderful to love your neighbor. Tells us how to handle situations and what to do when we're here. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful, holy, precious thing. and It has a right use. But now let's look at how it's not to be used in sanctification. The wrong use, if you would. We see this through verses 14 through 25. And here's this classic example of of this man struggling with wanting to do that which he can't do. And I know this commentator is going to debate if this is a Christian or non-Christian. And I'm not going to answer that question tonight. That's not my goal. I do say this, though I do have my opinion. I do say this about this last part of Romans 7. It applies to both Christians and non-Christians. That regardless if this man is Paul, if he's talking about himself, now that he's a Christian or what Lord Jones says, pre-conversion. It applies to all of us. Now, are we to be justified by the gospel and then all of a sudden turn around and be sanctified by the law? Paul gives us a clear answer in Galatians 1 verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Now, we're going to find out the Holy Spirit is crucial to obedience. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you become a Christian? Was it by works of the law or by faith alone? Then he goes on to say, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or sanctified or made holy by the flesh? The answer is no, you can't in your own flesh, your own will, your own power, your own fortitude. You know, you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do this. It's impossible, even as a Christian. You have to have some alien force, some supernatural power to enable you, to assist you, to help you. And you, yourself, in the good old law, is not going to be sufficient in living a holy life. Now, when you do counseling, at least when I do counseling, and there's basically three things you want the person to admit to or to come to. One, you want them to know the truth. Man, I got to first convince them that what they did was wrong and they need to know what they need to do is right. They need to know right from wrong. That's goal number one. The second goal is to get them to want to do what's right. That's even harder, right? A lot of people say, I know what I, want to, what I need to do. I just don't want to do it. A lot of people stand there. But you really think you've mastered them or you conquered them if you can get them to delight in the law. Not just, I know, I want, but if I can delight in it, that's the highest form of obedience, right? Loving it. But I'm going to tell you that if, even if you can accomplish all three of these things, Knowledge, desire, delight. Even if you can do all three of these things without the Spirit, you still can't obey. Even if you can get people to know what's right, want to do what's right, and actually enjoy doing what's right, that alone will not produce sanctification. Now, let's go through these things slowly. First of all, verses 14 through 17, knowing the law is not good enough. Just knowing right from wrong is not going to make you a good little johnny. It's not. You may even believe that the law is good. In fact, there's very few sinners that will say the law is evil. And I know there are some people in our day and age they are getting so wicked that they're turning good into evil and evil into good. But your average old citizen still will say there's right and there's wrong and they know the difference is written in their conscience. You can go into the prison systems and ask prisoners. And, and even the people that are prisoners and committed crimes will still say, yeah, it is good to do what's right. And they know what's right and wrong. And so knowing what to do is not sufficient enough. See, the problem is not a lack of knowledge. People just don't want to, right? But look at what it says in verse 14. But we know that the law is spiritual. We know that. We have certain knowledge about the law. It's spiritual. But I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. He's saying this, you know, the law is good, but the problem is not with the law. The law is holy. There's nothing evil about the law. It's not the problem. You know, the law might provoke me to sin, but it's not the law that's the problem. It's the, my flesh that uses the law to, to stimulate myself to do what I shouldn't do. The problem is me, not the law. We learn in chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the problem, not the law. It's not even a lack of knowledge. You see, obedience in our own power is still impossible. We see this in verse 15. For I am not, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Here, here's a guy that knows what's right, but he's not doing it. He finds himself back, back in, slave to the very things he doesn't want to do. I mean, I counsel a man for six months who's addicted to meth. I don't know if you ever had a family member who's on meth. It's not a strong addiction. It's hard to overcome. And this man wanted to overcome it. I believed him. He says, I hate this stuff. And he had the knowledge to know it was evil and bad and unhealthy. And he knew it was destroying his own physical health. He knew it was destroying his relationships. It was destroying his life. He, he, he didn't have to tell him that. He's like, I'm a living proof that this stuff is, is bad, and I don't want anybody else to be on this. But next week, it was again, knowing that it's wrong, knowing it's not good. So, you know, it's not like like so many people tell us, you know, the problem with humanity, they're basically good. They just need to be educated. No. People have something fundamentally wrong with their hearts. It's their flesh. Education is not enough. Counseling is not enough. Group therapy is not enough. Our sin problem is not because we do not know the law. We see in verse 17. The problem is that we're still sold under sin, which holds us captive to sin. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So knowing what's right and wrong... Is not good enough to be holy. Secondly, okay, well, maybe if I can just get myself to want to do what's right. Knowing, yeah, that's one thing, but wanting, that's even better. But we see in verses 18 through 21 that this is also not sufficient. The law is not going to empower us to obey even if we want to obey. Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Or I have the desire to do what is right. Okay, here's a man. I want to do this. I want to get off math. I don't want to cheat on my wife anymore. I don't want to lust. Hey, I don't want to have another ounce of pride in my life. I promise you I don't. I don't want to sin again. Why do I keep sinning? I tell you, it's not just because I don't want to. Wanting to is not sufficient to live holy. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Two times Paul says he desires to obey God. Verse 18 for I have a desire to do what is right, in verse 21, so I find that a law that when I want to do right. So it's a con- misconception that if you just want to do what is right, you will do it. It's not. It's not true. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to do you want. To, I'm not saying you don't need to know the law. And I'm not saying you don't need to want to obey the law. I'm just saying in and of themselves, that's not sufficient. I think this is true for believers, and I also think it's applicable to non-believers. It's a misconception of depravity, total depravity, to think that unbelievers don't want to be good people. They do, or at least initially. Little kids don't want to be a Hitler. They don't want to grow up to be evil. They want to be good. The problem with unbelievers is not that they don't want to be good. There's just something they want more. You know, it is a desire to do what's right, but there's just something even greater than that desire to do what's right. And it's it's me, myself, and I. They're enslaved to self. And it's something they can't overcome. So the unbeliever can't do one act of righteousness, even though he kind of wants to. He's still enslaved to his sin, even though he has a desire to be a good citizen and do what's right. He's totally depraved. He's enslaved to sin. But that doesn't mean they have some knowledge of awareness of right and wrong and some potency of to want to do it. See, even Paul, who wanted to obey the law, discovered that the law only stimulated more covetousness. We see that in verse 9. If we, if we go back. It says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. We see in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See, the natural man has a conflict of interest. Conflicting desires. Desires. You know, verse 17, so, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells with me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Even when we want to be good, we cannot overcome the flesh. I mean, have you ever gotten the circle of thinking like, I want to be good. Then next thing you know, I'm like, man, I was good. Then you fell into pride (laughs) and you're like, oh man. And it's, it's hard in fact, there I say, it's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's pretty defeating, isn't it? All it's left us with the realization, and we'll see this in a minute, oh, wretched man. It must bring us to our knees to realize, like, I don't have it. I don't have what it takes. You know, I used to be able to, believe it or not, I used to be able to dunk a basketball. And I was dunking in ninth grade. I, I Here's my pride seeping into my sermon. I used to be able to dunk in ninth grade, and I was getting, you know, two hands just. I have, I mean, I'm 43. It's long gone. But I remember being in my 30s and it's slipping and I couldn't do it anymore. And I've tried and tried and tried to dunk and tried and, d- and it's just like I can try a billion times. I'm not going to do it. It's not happening. I don't have the ability. I just, I I can want it. I can desire it. I can, I can, you know, in my mind, I used to skateboard. in my mind, I'm a pro skater. I know the moves. I I used to do the tricks. I could, I could still skate here. But listen, my body doesn't obey my desires. I can't skate anymore. And that's the way it is for holiness. We never were able to obey God. And even as Christians, let's not deceive ourselves and think, and I can do it. The law is to tell us you can't do it, not alone, that is, not by yourself, not just you and your best friend, the law. You'll find that the law tells you you can't do it, not that you can. Well, let's move to my third aspect. It's like, okay, I know I want to. Now if I can get where I just delight, I enjoy it. That's why you want your kids. You don't want your kids just to obey you and hate it. Nor do you just want your kids to know they need to clean a room. But what you really want your kids, right? You know, at least I want my kids. This, I love cleaning my room. I mean, that's you've mastered parenting if you can get your kids loving to obey. I, I just, I mean, you don't have to tell me, Mom and Dad. This is my delight. This is my joy. I, I've cleaned. In fact, I've already cleaned the house. I mean, now you've got them. But even this, even if we can get where we can delight ourselves in the law, we'll find that that's still not sufficient to obey the law. We see this at the end of chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I mean, I don't know what the inner being means, but it, it means something that's it's in his fiber. I actually delight. I, I mean, I, I enjoy this. I love God, I love the law. I want to obey. In my inner man, I delight in this. I mean this is probably true of Paul before he was converted. You know, he was a Pharisee and prided himself in his obedience. But most definitely is true post conversion. But we see in verse 33, 23, that loving the law, delighting in the law is still not enough. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Though I delight in the law in the inner man, I find that there's other principle, there's the other law working within my body, in my flesh, and that seems to always be getting the upper hand. Now, what you don't see in Romans 7, which is also... Often misunderstood. You don't see a man winning a battle, a man losing a battle, a man winning a battle, and a man losing a battle. What you see in Romans 7 is a man who's always losing, he's always defeated, he's always held captive. He knows, he desires, he delights. But he sees that he's always held captive to another principle, the law that is in his members that brings them into subjection. He's a slave. He's held, he used the word captive. He's, I'm captive to this, I'm in bondage to this. Now, as we include this first aspect of what the law is, the role of the law plays in sanctification. In review, the law brings awareness of sin. It tells us, gives us a knowledge of right and wrong. But we see that even if we want to, desire to, and delight to, we find that there's a missing element in the process. Now, let me pause before I get to the conclusion, these last two points, which is the best part. Maybe you're here, and you're struggling with something. and You've been struggling with it for a while. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. Maybe, you know, you're looking at things on your phone, and you know you shouldn't, and you find yourself going back to it, even though you've been trying not to. And, and it's such a sin that, you know, no one knows about it, because... It's on your phone, you know, and you, it's you and yourself, but you hate it. Maybe it's not that maybe it's, you're fighting with your husband and you're angry with your husband and you can't forgive your husband for something. And you know, you're wrong. You know, you need to forgive. You just, you're just like, I don't know how. I mean, I know what to do and I know I want to do it, but how do I do it? How do I move forward? How do I, how do I, am I just left in the state of captivity? Am I less with no hope? Is it just the law there to condemn me and I'm just stuck in my sin? Is that my life? Is that what I'm left to? Have you ever felt that way that I'm a defeated Christian? Have you ever felt like Paul at the end of this chapter says, "Oh wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this bondage of sin? Who's going to free me? Is there any hope for me?" Yes, there's hope. Christ came not that you may be defeated, not that you may remain in your sins. He's came to give you victory, and He's provided. A way to holiness. He's provided a means for sanctification. And it's not through your flesh. It's not through your own willpower. It's not through you. I can do this attitude. It's through humility and faith in the gospel. And this is where we turn to the role of the gospel in sanctification. Now, we know in verse 1 of chapter 8 that the gospel brings justification. Justification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that that's true. But we see also in verses 2 through 4. That the gospel is not just there for justification. It's there for our sanctification. We don't, you know, become justified by faith in the gospel. To turn around to be sanctified by the law. Are you so foolish to begin one way to think you'd be perfected? another way you see the just are not just forgiven by faith the just live by faith and whatever is not of faith is sin and if you're going to live the christian life and be victorious over your sins and to live a life of holiness and obey the law we're not saying get away with the law do away with the law the law is still the standard it's still holy and we want to keep it but the only way to keep the law is not looking to the law. But looking to Christ. It's only by faith. Now this is so important. We see in verse 2. Only Christ has had the power to deliver us from the power of sin. And now Christ did it in his flesh. That's the miracle. Look at verse 2. For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus From the law of sin and death. Christ has delivered us from this bondage through the Holy Spirit. He's given us freedom. I can safely tell you, I don't believe you'll be perfected until glory. I don't believe in sinless perfection. But I do believe you can overcome your addictions. I do believe you can overcome pride. I do believe you can overcome lust. I do believe you can... Live holy. Right? Thank God. There's a way. Christ has opened the door for us. But it's not through the law. It's through the gospel. Only Christ is able to overcome the weakness of our flesh. And he did it in the strength of his flesh. We see that in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, He overcome your flesh by His flesh. He overcame your weakness and inability, your enslavement to sin by His ability to obey God. He did it for us. And by Him doing it for us, He takes his power, the power that he lived out his life, and he loans it to you and I, that we're not in our own flesh, in our own power, but we live with a supernatural alien power given to us. Augustine says the law proved itself weak because it did not accomplish what it commanded. This was not the fault of the law, but that of the flesh. That is of men. And this is the problem of the flesh. It cannot submit to God. Those in the flesh cannot obey God. What does it mean to be in the flesh? It means a lot of things. One, it means to be self-confident. Two, it means just to be worldly minded or carnally minded. There's many things it means to walk in the flesh, and you have all the, the works of the flesh, but that's all the flesh can produce. And one thing I can say about you, you take God away from you, you take the Holy Spirit away from you, you take the gospel away from you, and you can't do anything but sin. Constantly. Well, you're not helping my self-esteem. I'm trying to give you hope. Point you to the only real hope. What do you need to do? Say, hey, I want to overcome this. And the best thing you can do is get on your knees and believe God. Trust God. Look to God. You know, in Romans 7, it uses the word flesh six times. and It's always negative. Uh, And this is what we need to be delivered from. And look at verse 4. Only Christ can conquer sin in our lives. Verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, what is he saying? You can live a holy life. You can keep the commandments. That the righteous requirements of the law, the Ten Commandments, don't do this, don't do that. Love your heart. God, with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. All these wonderful commandments that are right and holy and pure and precious that we love. These righteous requirements can be fulfilled in you. Your righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You can live a righteous life. But the answer is not the way Romans 7 says. The man of Romans 7 was trying to do it just in his own flesh, his own power. But it's not those who walk in the flesh, but those who walk in the spirit. Then the rest of Romans chapter 8, where a big portion of Romans 8 goes on to tell us what does it look like to walk in the spirit? What does that mean to walk in the spirit? We see in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You know, one easy thing to live a better life and is it, just to saturate yourself with the Word of God. And get your mind off the things of the world. Now, I, I listen to all kinds of secular music. So don't hear me saying, don't listen to secular music. Don't hear me say that. Because I was listening to some on the way to church here. But I notice when I'm only listening to secular music, it affects me. I'm just being honest. Not initially. But it's just amazing how that time I'm using to think about this, I'm not thinking about other things. We need to be spiritually minded. We need to walk in the Spirit. Wake up praying. Wake up seeking the Lord. Wake up looking to Christ. Wake up dependent upon grace and looking. Lord, please go with me today. Help me. And we can, verse 6 says, For the To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And we can go to Galatians and talk about the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. I'm telling you, it's the gospel. It's Christ that brings forth holiness in our lives the law is good but it's the gospel that brings forth righteousness it's whatever is not of faith is sin and is only that which stems from faith is pleasing to the lord let's go to the lord in prayer Dear Lord, we do want to live holy before you. We precious, we we do believe your law is precious in your sight and we count it precious on our side. We want to live according to its standards. We want to be holy. We, we see that, Lord. That unless the spirit enables, guides us, leads us. Lord, we can't do it. But thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us to ourselves. Thank you, the Lord, that we don't have to battle sin in our own power. Lord, we do believe Christianity is a supernatural religion with a supernatural salvation. And all of sanctification is supernatural. Lord, please don't leave us to ourselves. Don't forsake us. Lord, we would be doomed and lost. We would be going into all manners of sin if it wasn't for your grace. This we pray in your son's name. Amen.